Hi, it's Tom here. I'm not actually on the podcast this week, but regardless, I wanted to take a moment to record this to say a huge thank you to everyone who supports Spiked and to let you know about how you can support us if you don't already. The answer is there's loads of ways to do it. The best way, as many of you will know by now, is through a monthly donation by going to spiked-online.com and hitting the big red donate button. Even £5 a month makes a huge difference to us. It helps us plan for the future. One-off donations, however, are also greatly appreciated if you can't commit to anything regular right now. And if you can't make a donation at the moment, there are other ways that you can show your support. You can give this podcast and all of our other podcasts a glowing rating and review with your provider. It's a great way for us to reach new people. If you're watching or listening to this on YouTube, you can hit the like button and the subscribe button if you have a YouTube account. And just as crucially, you can share our work, tell your friends, post it on social media. Any way you can spread the word is still greatly appreciated. So thanks so much for all your support. Now, on with this week's show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked's columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And Tom Slater is away, so Spiked columnist Tim Black is joining us down the line. Hi. Coming up on the show, Caroline Flack, Andrew Sabisky and Dave at the Brit Awards. The TV presenter of Love Island, Caroline Flack, has died. In the wake of Caroline's death, close friends and the media have raised questions about how much press intrusion played a part. To the press, the newspapers who create clickbait, who demonise and tear down success. We've had enough. We all need to think about what we can do to change the environment. Love Island presenter Caroline Flack died by suicide on Saturday. In an unpublished Instagram post released by her family, she said her whole world had been swept away from under her feet. At the end of last year, Flack was charged with assaulting her boyfriend, Lewis Burton. Flack denied the offence and Burton refused to support the prosecution. Nevertheless, Flack was still dropped by ITV. Commentators have been quick to point the finger at the press, particularly the tabloids, A petition calling for tighter laws on how newspapers cover celebrities has gained over 600,000 signatures. Ella, that's not the full picture, is it? No, um, and I genuinely think lots of people were really shocked by this, because partly because by court order in some respects, Caroline Flack had been forced out of public life. She wasn't posting particularly on social media. She's usually always in the headlines. She wasn't other than nasty coverage of unflattering and upsetting pictures of her going to court and all these kinds of things. So the news that she'd taken her own life was genuinely shocking. Mm. But the worst thing that was literally in the minutes and hours after her death was announced, there was this huge row ensuing on social media about who was to blame. Mm. Um, And usually when these things happen, you have a general sensible sense from most people of, you know, the person isn't even cold yet. I mean, this is really distasteful to be rowing over what killed them. But in this case, there was people immediately slamming the sun, for example, um, for running, you know, its history of running particularly unpleasant and um, intrusive stories about Caroline Flack's past and her love life and her social life and whether it was blaming the tabloids there was others who then said you know pointed the finger at ITV and said that they had failed her when they'd essentially cut ties with her or forced her out after the um, allegations were made against her with the abuse scandal with her boyfriend but really the overarching picture is we don't know why she uh, took her own life Uh, the 
releasing of that Instagram post by her family was quite important because actually it was a reminder to everyone that, you know, the different mental states that a person can have when they are that unwell uh, and that unstable because in that post she sounded like she's very determined to clear her name, to get her life back together. And then obviously that wasn't the case um, come February. The thing we have to take away from this is that there is this very confused picture, in my point of view, about celebrity culture and Mm. that whole world, um, and especially the relationship with the media and social media. Because the uncomfortable truth is an individual like Caroline Flack, a celebrity, courted media attention, was extremely proud of the show she uh, was the presenter of Love Island, yeah. really enjoyed that lifestyle, went on salacious dates with 17-year-olds at one point and, you know, really courted media attention, good and bad. Uh, so the idea that it was media uh, focus that killed her is just not true. Mm. The truth is it's probably a mix of things. Um, going forward, there's been calls for Caroline's Law to silence what kind of press coverage there can be. There's calls for Love Island to shut down. I think that the most sensible approach is to just let this woman rest in peace and yeah. not take any kind of moral lessons from the death of Caroline Flack. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that that was really the most striking thing. You know, the hashtag the scum was trending to point the finger at the sun. One mental health campaigner said she um, had effectively been killed by manslaughter by the press. A Labour MP called The Sun a despicable rag, which continues to spread a daily message of vindictiveness and hate in its pages. The Guardian said The Sun was feeding vicious online abuse of a clearly vulnerable woman. And, you know, obviously The Sun does a lot of celebrity coverage, but actually when it came to, you know, some of the allegations, they did run some defences of Flack. And at a time when, you know, her employer ITV had not defended her, I think that was one of the striking aspects of this. Of course, we, I, I don't want to um, impute any motive into the suicide, but it was, it was interesting that ITV didn't defend her. And, and in recent times, you know, we talked about, uh, on the podcast recently about Alistair Stewart. It failed to defend, you know, one of its veteran broadcasters against allegations that he'd been basically tweeting the wrong thing. So one kind of problem, I guess, in, in the current era could be that there is a kind of institutional cowardice, that there is a, an unwillingness for institutions like ITV or maybe the BBC and other, and other places to stand up for their own people when they get allegations thrown at them. And, you know, that's in no way to blame ITV for this suicide because it's, as you said, there's always a multitude of factors. But I, I thought that was one of the striking things. Tim, what are your thoughts? It was absolutely striking uh, the speed with which people uh, used uh, kind of flax death to vent their prejudices and their their agendas as well um, and obviously the principal one was that a chance to bash the tabloids and, and of course the people that read them the, the public that lap it up you know you even had Keir Starmer uh, having a go at uh, the tabloids over over Caroline Flack's death, and then talking about the possibility under a Labour government of, uh, of of you know forcefully diversifying, as he puts it, the press. Um, and it, it's bizarre in a way because you you know that people like Keir Starmer and the countless others who've been uh, venting their spleen over the last uh, few days do not read the Sun and certainly do not watch Love Island. Or, yeah. you know, perhaps Keir Starmer does. Perhaps perhaps I've got him all wrong. Perhaps he's at home every night tuning in to see the shenanigans of of, of a bunch of buxom young lovelies but but i doubt it i doubt it very much caroline flack herself actually in the aftermath of the death of one of the love island contestants last year uh, the suicide of uh, mike thalassitis uh, she actually 
said or had a go at those who were quick to blame uh, Love Island uh, for its uh, failure to look after its contestants. She said that when something this horrible and sad occurs, it's so dangerous to point fingers within hours and minutes of it happening. Uh, and it seemed that just so many were willing to you know, ignore that type of advice and, and, and get stuck in. You mentioned the Caroline's Law hashtag. Uh, I think that equally or perhaps even worse was the hashtag be kind mm. uh, which has an entirely coercive function i think because it you know you're effectively saying to to people to journalists you know hold off on criticizing people in the public eye hold off on reporting things uh, because it could be considered to be mean or have certain uh, you know unforeseen consequences um so not only is that coercive, but it's also hypocritical because the same people who are, say, you know, hashtagging uh, be kind, they're the same ones saying, you know, calling other people scum, thick, idiotic. So it's effectively saying be kind to people who are a bit like us, but don't be kind to those people over there. You know, so it's, yeah. it's both coercive and hypocritical. The whole thing also is just, you know, just desperately sad as well. I think also when people were kind of pointing the blame at, the media, social media, the whole thing that was overlooked was the allegations against her and the weight that allegations against you, they can have on a person. You know, it's a very serious and testing thing for any person to be arrested and charged by the police and to face trial. Now, obviously, we don't know the truth of, of those matters. All we, all we know is that she denies it and that her boyfriend who you know, was the victim in that circumstance, did not want the process to go ahead. You know, we, we've seen similar things in the wake of Me Too, where people have been accused of sexual assault, have gone on to kill themselves, thinking about the Welsh Assembly member, Carl Sargent, Benny Fridrickson, who was head of the Stockholm Arts Centre, Couture, who's at Stat Eastern, he went on to kill himself. There was the film producer, Jill Messick. Um, she was a colleague of Harvey Weinstein and was basically accused by Rose McGowan and others of failing to offer solidarity with abused women. There was a Mexican rock star recently who killed himself after an allegation was made in what he called a, a radical protestation of innocence. And so there, there is almost, by blaming only the press and only social media, there is this unwillingness to confront the fact that we live in quite a dangerous culture where you know allegations are, are made and their presumption of innocence is often lost and you know it's very hard for people to deal with that pressure yeah and in the case of caroline flax that evening that the row between her and her boyfriend broke out and the consequences of it people used it as a political moment so mm. because there's this big mess of a discussion about hashtag me too and believe the victim and all of that kind of thing. I mean, most of us who are halfway sensible look at the information that came out of that case with Caroline Flack and probably come to the conclusion that she is not a domestic abuser, yeah. but that there was something far more messy and complicated going on that's actually pretty common among couples and that you have some very dark times. But because there's this whole narrative of you having to commit to believing the victim, the CPS felt, I think, pressured to go through with it, even though yeah. Lewis Burton said, he actually, I think at one point said, I'm not a victim, I'm a witness to this. So yeah. he really didn't want this to go ahead. They refused her a dispensation to contact him at Christmas and at New Year's. And uh, there was lots of people on social media saying, look, uh, you know, everyone goes on about hashtag me too and women, but women can be abusers too. So it was much bigger than actually those two individuals. Yeah. And the weight of that on her must have been immense. And I think that the, you know, again, without wanting to say this is the reason why Caroline Flack took that horrible final step. 
you know, I think looking at it, the allegations made against her, the fact that she was not just dragged through the press, but dragged through the press as this abusive monster, this something that was actually completely alien to her own identity. She yeah. got blown up into this gigantic symbolic figure. You know, that must have been extremely hard to deal with. And if there is one thing to learn going forward is that this should increase the belief in, I think that's a lacking of innocent until proven guilty, because there's nothing worse that you can imagine in terms of your psychological mental health of being blamed for something that you didn't do. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. At the beginning of the year, the Prime Minister's chief strategist, Dominic Cummings, posted on his blog that Downing Street was looking to hire misfits and weirdos with odd skills. One of the first weirdos through the door was Andrew Sabisky, a self-styled super forecaster. But he was forced to quit his role after old comments were uncovered. Sabisky had previously said that black Americans had lower IQs than white Americans. He also argued that forced contraception could prevent unplanned pregnancies, which needed to be curbed because they risked creating a permanent underclass. His Reddit account was also uncovered, and comments found him expressing his interest in incest erotica. Tim, there's a lot of talk in right-wing circles that this is an example of offence archaeology or cancel culture and that we should just defend Sabisky on free speech grounds. I mean, what would be your take on that? The first thing to say is that, you know, there does seem to be have been a catastrophic failure to vet applicants here for um, senior positions in government. You know, it, for all the talk of Dominic Cummings' genius, it seems like a rather insensible uh, decision not to, to check uh, whether Sabisky might have said or, or published things online, uh, which might unfortunately confirm the rather tedious narrative of the Tories being a racist Nazi uh, government, or certainly the yeah. narrative that some of the left say, you know, because their Cummings is having seemingly appointed Sabisky, uh, who unfortunately did seem to confirm people's worst prejudices about the Tory government, um, is an example of council culture. Um, Sabisky, you know, he's he's free to spout nonsense about, uh, you know, the role uh, genes play in uh, IQ and in inherited intelligence and so on. Uh, and he can spout that stuff on, you know, countless dark enlightenment forums in which that kind of sub-Nietzschean uh, rubbish tends to flourish. But the question of whether he should be allowed um, or appointed to a, a, an advisory position in government to be talking uh, to Boris Johnson about policy, uh, it, it, that's a completely different question. And yeah. it seems entirely right that the government have, uh, well, we don't actually know whether he resigned or the government pushed him. I, I, I suspect he was going to be sacked uh, and he decided to, uh, to take the jump. But it seems entirely right that uh, they should have, should have got rid of him. Yeah, Ella, what are your thoughts? Well, Brendan wrote a column on this this week and I think the really interesting thing that he pointed out that lots of other people were missing in this kind of discussion online from lots of prominent right-wingers saying, oh, this is a free speech issue, was how, while the views of Sabisky and 
in specifics are quite unique in terms yeah. of it's not not everybody believes that there's an underclass to be prevented and that black people have different intelligence to white people because of their genetics and all that kind of thing that's the extreme end but actually the point that Brenda made was there's been a broader acceptance of ideas of determinism yeah. and this sort of sense that people are fated to be a certain way and whether that's the social determinism of the left or mm. the as we see slightly darker um, genetic determinism of the right it's sort of widespread and i was thinking about things like you know david attenborough um an individual who is you know held up as a kind of superhero superstar um by many in the west has some pretty dark views when it comes to population control and mm. he holds those views that their women in african nations should be educated so in order for them to stop having children and that's not quite a eugenicist clamp down on forced sterilization of pregnancies yeah. but you know it's on the it's on the same journey towards where people got those kind of ideas from in all discussions even on a lighter end of quotas for women in positions or quotas for working class or disadvantaged kids in universities there's this general sense that people who are born a certain way a certain thing a certain identity will end up living their life a certain way yeah and it's the same trend that comes from the idea that you are going to have a lower iq if you're born in tottenham to a single parent family that if you're born in tottenham to a single parent family you're going to need a hand up or a leg up to get into cambridge so actually <laughs> what we should take from the sabisky scandal is not that the uh, Tories are full of eugenicists, but actually that we've become worryingly and increasingly okay with a sense of determinism being a good explanation for the way people are. And the kind of flourishing of kind of genetic ideas is, is just one expression of that. I think also what is really striking is that it has now become normal for um, people at the top of society to consider themselves so much better than working class people that, you know, they're so much more enlightened and more deserving of the vote and things like that, that whether they explain that on the grounds that, oh, I have a degree and they don't, or I have better genes than they don't, often the result ends up being the same. I think there is a worrying rise of, you know, some quite strange ideas about genetics happening on the right. And, and it was interesting that, um, Dominic Cummings himself has, has dabbled in these ideas. He produced this, you know, 200 page document for the Department for Education when he was working um, with Michael Gove, basically making the argument that genes play a greater role in people's educational performance than their, than their teachers. And, you know, there's a part of me that thinks that if you really believe that, then what is the point of the Department of Education? You know, what is the point of having an, an education if, if actually these things are written not so much in the stars, but in your DNA? I think it is completely nonsense. I think there's, you know, it takes absolutely no account of social forces, our relationships with society. You know, the, fa the fact is that you could put people with the same DNA in two different parts of the world. And because of the, you know, the class they're born into, the, the nature of the way society is set up, how the economy is going, where they live in those countries, geography, all those things are going to have a much bigger impact than on whether they have a certain set of genetic characteristics. It, it seems to me to be completely crazy. I think people are going on a kind of fool's errand trying to work out this stuff. I just want to say one thing quickly on Dominic Cummings' kind of misfits and, and weirdos. 
it's funny how actually, you know, voters kind of take back control from the EU technocracy. But Dominic Cummings has his own kind of vision for technocracy where the people like Sabisky, who call themselves super forecasters, are going to disrupt the civil service. And it's quite a romantic kind of vision. And I'm not sure that it's actually going to get very far. You know, the, the right policies will be determined by whether they work on the ground, not by whether some wonk has some special way of thinking about it. Tim, do you want to add anything? It has revealed something perhaps we already knew that, you know, for all the um, rather excited press that comes Dominic, Dominic Cummings' way, I think it's, 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 it's highly problematic that he, he tends to think, and I suspect perhaps some members of the, uh, the conservative leadership seem to think, that, uh, you know, the, the political uh, crisis and opportunity of the past three years or the crisis that it's revealed itself appears to them as something that can be solved either bureaucratically or technocratically mm. uh, and in some ways they, they're sort of the, the same thing um, and it, it, it does tell us it does reveal something I, I think about the the, the nature of, of, of the current uh, conservative administration the other aspect of this whole fiasco in some ways um, it, you're both right about this kind of how the determinism uh, that we're seeing here on, on you know, this kind of right-wing determinism that everything can be reduced to uh, genes or biology and, and, and so on uh, does, in a sense, uh, mirror the cultural determinism uh, of many on the, I guess we'd sort of call it the, the liberal left. Uh, there is that. There's also the way in which... This idea that there, you know, you know, Sabisky does seem to sort of articulate these ideas uh, that um, racial uh, inequality uh, is in, 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 in some way the product of a genetic or biological inequality, and therefore there's not uh, too much uh, you can do about it. That almost seems to be a again a mirror image. Uh, if, if you like, of that uh, attempt to, on, on the part of the, the liberal left, uh, to divide society up in, into these kind of cultural ethnic blocks. Yeah. Uh, and th- what it seems to do is, what, what this kind of Sabisky view seems to do is, it seems to uh, almost respond to the to the uh, almost like hierarchy of victimhood which the liberal left uh, establishes. Uh, it seems to respond to it by sort of uh, reasserting, you know, or as you say, repackaging these kind of horrible old ideas. It seems to respond to this kind of hierarchy of victimhood with this, you know, uh, old-fashioned hierarchy of race grounded upon this supposed sort of natural inferiority of uh, non-white uh, peoples. Uh, so I think what both sides in this kind of battle of the uh, determinisms seem to leave no room for is that space for autonomy, that space for an individual to, well, they allow no sort of concept that an individual can think and judge and act freely and, and can develop oneself, can transcend uh, whatever determinants in their genes or their backgrounds uh, that happen to be. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. The rapper Dave performed at the Brit Awards this week and added an extra verse to his hit song, Black. In it, he accused the Prime Minister of being a real racist, attacked the press coverage of Meghan Markle 
and criticised deforestation, among other things. Dave's Extraverse was praised by Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, Baroness Saeed Avasi, practically every Guardian journalist and more. Um, Ella, what did you make of it? Well, I mean, it's actually an interesting thing to look at because, you know, the idea of putting politics or protest into a song is longstanding. Mm. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, Ghost Town by The Specials, Police on My Back, The Clash, um, Strange Fruit by Nina Simone. There's been yeah. moments at times in history in which people who are predominantly musicians and artists have used their platform to make political points. Uh, and so Dave is not doing anything new in that. Yeah. But the difficult thing is he just threw so much in there. So there were things which really resonated, like the issue of Grenfell Tower. He's a London rapper. That message is going to resonate with his fans. But then, uh, you know, doing the whole Boris Johnson is racist thing, which at this point is just quite hackneyed because yeah. we've had endless debates about that. But then he mentioned Windrush and you think, oh, he's got a point there. But then he talked about Kate and Meghan Markle. And there was just too much. There's too <laughs> much in there. And more importantly, never mind actually what he did the more telling thing is that you then get these generous and continual rounds of applause from the kind of people labor mps who you know yeah. I, I probably had to be briefed on who dave is yeah um and so it, it just all feels a bit lame and that sounds incredibly uh, unforgiving and unsympathetic for what this 21-year-old did on stage, and I'm sure he meant it, but compare it to Strange Fruit by Nina Simone, which was saying something incredibly controversial and radical and impactful at the time, and it really meant something, whereas now there's almost the pressure on if rappers, and especially black rappers like Dave and Stormzy, don't put these kind of political messages in, then yeah. they're missing a trick either with promotions or with the kind of woke discussion about music online who criticise people like that for not using their platform for good. So it just leaves you a bit cold. Yeah, and, you know, Stormzy did a similar thing at last year's Brits and he, you know, chanted, fuck the government, fuck Boris at, at Glastonbury and everyone, you know, was there to congratulate him. That's the thing. I mean, the, the laundry list of what Dave was talking about would not look out of place at any kind of Guardian Easter dinner party. Mm. And that's why you had people from the Guardian, from the Financial Times, you know, praising him. Whereas there was once a time when rap or, you know, various kind of new forms of music would have scandalised, you know, the, the right thinking people, whether that's because it's too sexual, too violent, too... Um, too political even mm. but now it seems to be quite lame quite uh stale which is which is just a sad thing in general i mean last year's brits was was probably even more interesting in the fact that the 1975 literally read out a, p a piece from a guardian column i mean it doesn't get squarer than that to be honest <laughs> that's that's not what i thought rock and roll was about but anyway tim your thoughts as you both say, it's not terrifically exciting to hear someone uh, called Boris Johnson a racist for the uh, 17th millionth time. It's just a, a, a widespread um, cliche. You know, you've mentioned the various uh, figures from the worlds of showbiz that, was, that have obviously accused Johnson of racism. I mean, I keep thinking of Gary Neville on Sky Sports on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> he quite happily called Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, a racist. Uh, and, you know, there didn't seem to be much outcry either in the studio or on Twitter. There was just, uh, you know, constant cheering along. It is 
odd when you think about it. As Ella quite rightly pointed out, there's been a long history of, uh, you know, cultural figures sticking the boot into uh, the political establishment. Um, you know, cultural figures take anti-establishment lines, and that's fine, all, all power to them. But what's interesting at the moment, I think, is, is the extent to which a cultural figure uh, having a pop at uh, the leader of the country, it tells us something about the way in which the cultural establishment is almost opposed to, uh, you know, well, certainly the uh, political leadership of the country. So what would make it more interesting, what would, what would be more surprising, is if a cultural figure actually, you know, stuck the boot into the cultural establishment for yeah. a change, you know, actually says something that surprised the audience. You know, I keep thinking of, you know, great artistic protests from the past, you know, very sort of uh, 19th or sort of early 20th century avant-garde, and they scandalised uh, their own audiences. You know, you think of sort of the Dada movement in sort of uh, 1917 Zurich, and they shocked their kind of bourgeois patrons. Whereas what you have at the moment is you have artists, you know, rappers with a, you know, a certain sort of anti-establishment cachet. They're not scandalising their audience at all. They're, you know, they're just preaching to the converted. You know, yeah. they are telling them what they want to hear. I would like to see a pop star or uh, a comedian or an artist actually say something which went against uh, the prevailing um, attitude and uh, political sentiment which seems to dominate our cultural establishment right now. Ella, anything to add? I mean, the important thing is obviously questions about racism and talking about racism is important. And particularly for, you know, someone like Dave, 21-year-old kid from Streatham, these issues are close to home. He also talked a lot about rehabilitation. He mentioned Jack Merritt. Uh, he himself has a brother who's in jail. All these things are personal to him. And it's not to say that he shouldn't talk about these things. But if we want to have serious conversations about racism, it's not that we shouldn't do them on the stage at the Brits, but it's that you have to interrogate what effect the continual crying wolf of racism against people like Boris Johnson is mm. doing to more general discussions about racism because there are, you know, the hostile environment, for example, that the government um, spearheaded uh, was in many ways a kind of racist policy. The treatment of Windrush was something that had uh, deep implications for discussions about racism in this country. All of these things are very serious political issues and we should talk about them openly instead of, uh, you know, elevating a young rapper to the position of almost a politician or, or a political figurehead when actually these are much more complex issues. You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.